This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen. And welcome to episode 74 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Today, I'm going to talk about how to be a leader, even if you aren't in a designated leadership position, or if you are in a leadership position, how to be an even better leader. The whole point of this is that a lot of therapists feel disempowered in their role. There's a lot of bureaucratic red tape that they have to deal with that prevents them from providing the services that they want to. And with this being a helping people profession, it can leave people feeling kind of helpless to really serve their caseloads the way that they want. And it can be frustrating to see all of these mandates and this these politics and things that have to do with the way that your facility is set up. And a lot of people start to question whether they're in the right field or if, if they are or maybe if they do want to stay in the field, they're kind of just feeling a little bit jaded and it's it wasn't really what they signed up for. Um, maybe they're just wanting more. And so with that in mind, I wanted to talk about this shift that you can make because a lot of times people feel like the people in the actual leadership positions, like the administrators, supervisors, um, school board, all of those things, a lot of times they feel like those other people have more power than they do and that they can't really do anything because they're not 
a person who is actually uh, officially responsible for making certain decisions. And what I wanted to share today is why you can actually have a bigger impact than you think, even if you don't change positions, and even if you aren't officially in some type of a supervisor or administrator role. Many times, if you change the way that you approach your job, you can actually make a bigger impact than you realize. So I'm going to talk about how to make this shift in the episode today. And the reason that I'm talking about this particular topic is because in September, I am launching a program focused on a program focused on helping clinicians be better leaders. Many of the clinicians that I currently mentor, while we're working on some things that they can do differently in their therapy to be more effective, there are a lot of other things that come with the role of being a pediatric therapist if you're in the school systems or even if you're in healthcare. You know there's way more to your job than just doing the actual therapy. And when you can leverage all of those other things, all of those other activities that you do, it can have a huge impact on the way that you feel about your job and the impact that you have. So I'm actually, as I said, opening up the doors to that program in September. But if you're interested in being on the waiting list so you can get more information when the doors open, all you need to do is go to drkarendudakbrandon.com backslash leadership. Again, that's drkarendudakbrandon.com backslash leadership. So now let's get into the episode where I talk about making the leadership shift. So in the past couple of episodes, I have been talking about optimism although it doesn't seem like I've been talking about it. So in two episodes ago, I talked about shit sandwiches. And then in the episode, and then the last episode, I talked about crappy self-care strategies and why they don't work and what we can do instead. To bring you up to speed and kind of give you a synopsis, basically the whole shit sandwich thing is that, you know, as pediatric therapists, there are a lot of problems that we have in our jobs. And a lot of times it can feel like it can feel like we can't solve them. It can feel hopeless. We can feel very disempowered in our roles. And it also sometimes can be tempting to think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. So thinking that if only these problems were solved, things would be better. If only I could switch jobs or if only I had this other situation. And some of that might have some truth to it. But really, when we're looking at reality, every single situation that you are in, uh, regardless of whatever problems you have right now, if they were to be solved, there would be something else that comes up. No matter how amazing the situation is, nothing is good all of the time. Everything sucks some of the time. So really, what the whole shit sandwich analogy is, is about is really embracing the fact that problems are inevitable. But ultimately, what we want to do is get clear on what problems we are willing to deal with in the interest of doing something that we care deeply about. So that's really the first step to really finding fulfillment in what you do. And whether that be helping you to make a decision 
as to whether or not you make a career transition or whether that be just finding creative ways to solve the shit sandwiches that you're currently dealing with. But the next step really in my mind is that not only do we have to acknowledge the fact that there are going to be problems and accept that, find peace in the idea that while we can't have a life that doesn't have any problems, we do have some autonomy and control over which problems we choose to have and which situations we put ourselves in. But ultimately, the next step is, all right, how do we go about solving them? And it can be really difficult to do that if we are really burnt out and we don't feel like we have control of our time. And so that's why the next thing that I talked about was self-care and really the idea of how traditional things like just, you know, the the typical self-care recommendations like taking a bubble bath or taking a walk or whatever doesn't really get to the root cause of the problem. Many times people feel stressed because they don't have a good system for how they plan their time and their schedule. And a lot of the things out there, a lot of the tools and tips out there for productivity are not really getting to the root cause of the problem because many times they are too in the weeds. We have a lot of checklists and calendars, which they're fine as tools within a broader system, but really what we need to be able to do in order to stay productive and avoid burnout is do what's known as counterbalance, where we are really focused on one thing at a time. And the way that we do that, the way that we figure out how to plan our day and you know get up in the morning and figure out what things are on my plate for today, what things do I need to focus on, and how do I set boundaries around that so that I can remove any guilt I have about neglecting the other things temporarily. Well, the way that we figure out how to focus on one thing at a time is to really get clear on the big picture and to create what's known as the master plan. I talked about the 30,000 foot view, how we want to zoom out and figure out where we're going. What's our big end goal? And doing that is going to help you get a clear picture of where you're going so that you can actually motivate yourself and figure out what you need to do in the moment, day to day. Like, what am I doing today that's going to move me towards that big goal? It's really hard to do that if you don't even know what you're working towards And it's also really hard to stay motivated to do something that's above and beyond the the urgent fires that you need to put out if you don't even know where you're going. It's hard to to motivate yourself to do something if you don't even really know what, what you're doing. And how this relates to therapists is that many therapists that I work with, they are in a situation where they feel like there are a lot of problems and a lot of ways that their facility that they're working in or maybe just the the field in general, they they know that they want to be doing something more, but they can't quite figure out what that is. So when they show up to work day after day, they look at their to-do list day after day and figure out what needs to go on it. They can't quite articulate what they need to be doing above and beyond what they're already doing, just immediate things. And as a result, it just 
they have this this feeling of of longing or this void for something more and they're not really sure they can't really put their finger on what it actually is and what they tangibly need to do in order to make some changes in their facility or the field as a whole. And when you don't have a clear picture of what that big project is and what you're working towards, it's really hard to start at the end and work backwards and then figure out day to day, what are those other things that you can be doing that aren't necessarily these urgent fires that you need to put out, but are more in the proactive realm and can work you towards some kind of a passion project that means something for you. And really finding the answer is about asking better questions. Now, I am a speech pathologist, but this is relevant to other people who work with kids. It's relevant for psychologists, social workers, OTs, PTs, music therapists, counselors. So really anybody who is in that that pediatric therapy realm where they are working with kids kindergarten through 12th grade and really preparing kids to be adults. Doesn't necessarily have to be in the school systems, but obviously that is going to be a big part of of what it is. And I know that there are a number of different roles within those professions that I mentioned, but as a therapist and, and as we are thinking about what we do for kids, it's really easy to get stuck in a silo of what your individual role is and to ask the question of where do I fit into the mix and what am I supposed to be doing? I know as a speech pathologist, what other speech pathologists ask me is usually, they usually ask me questions like, what do I do in therapy to help kids? And that is definitely a relevant question to be asking. It's probably what some of the other professions ask as well. It's probably what teachers are asking when they're trying to think about what they should be doing in class to teach kids useful skills. But when you think of kids, and and I'm really thinking about the special education system here because obviously therapists are often part of special education. And when we think about therapy, I think that asking the question, what do I do in therapy, is not the right question to ask, at least to start with. I think the most appropriate and more helpful question is, what does this child need and how do I make sure that they get it? So what we're really doing here is focusing not on planning therapy, but more planning service delivery. And I know that depending on what your role is, you may already be focused on this somewhat, uh, especially, for example, if you're a school psychologist, their role is, is different, for example, than an SLP, because the SLP spends more time doing therapy typically, where a school psychologist often has more of a coordinating and evaluating role, and they may often be working more in the coordinating of services. But it's important for all school service personnel to understand this because regardless of what your role is, it can be really important for everybody on the team to make that shift in how they think about their roles and the other people's roles. Because a lot of times what happens, um, for example, from from my perspective as somebody who is 
in a position where I would be providing a lot of direct services for kids, or at least it would be expected for me to be providing a lot of direct services for kids. If I were to have some other things on my schedule that didn't involve direct therapy, but were still a form of service, then chances are people might question that and wonder why I am doing things that way. So it's important for the other members of the team to understand that. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what I mean by service delivery versus therapy. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that when all of these professionals come together, there are some overlaps in roles. And that's that's why thinking about this from the lens of service delivery and not just what am I doing in my therapy session in my silo over here is is an important shift to make because a lot of times there might be more than one person who can do a certain thing. And so we do want to consider our individual area of expertise, but we also have to think about the big picture before we can even think about what we individually are doing in our specific role. So I think the easiest way for me to explain this is to first talk about the overlap in scope and give some tangible examples of how I've experienced it from my angle. Now, these are definitely not, uh, this is definitely not an exhaustive list, but just to give a little bit of context. So as a speech pathologist, a lot of the things that I would have focused on in the schools and a lot of the other SLPs that I mentor are, are focusing on this as well, where we are focusing on language and literacy because that is going to be something that impacts kids academically. So obviously we'd be doing this for the kids who are eligible for services and who qualify based on our evaluations that indicate they have needs. Um, maybe they have a specific diagnosis that indicates that they have some language processing issues. So with that being said, our role would be that we would work on things like vocabulary and syntax and all the language skills that are going to support high-level reading comprehension because that's going to be a really important thing to work on in school. Now, when you're talking about language, it, it overlaps with so many different things. It can inf- impact writing. It can impact reading. It can impact being able to spell different words. It impacts our vocabulary acquisition. So that could have an impact on math because you have a lot of vocabulary there. There's the content areas. So it's it's this thing that it, when you think about what it actually is, it's just, it's massive. So when we are figuring out who's working on what, the SLP might be qualified to work on a lot of different things, but they might not have the capacity in their unique setup to work on all of those things. And so what makes sense is for us to think about what an individual child actually needs and then figure out all the people who are on that child's team and all the resources that we have available on that IEP team and then figure out, okay, how do we link up what they actually need to the people on the team based on their scope. So for example, what would happen a lot of times with kids that I was working with when I was in the schools is that we might have a student who needed some services for reading, so they might be getting services from a special ed teacher, 
And they also, maybe they had some sensory issues. Maybe they have a diagnosis that also makes them eligible for services in occupational therapy. And, and so that occupational therapist might be working on fine motor and sensory. And then I, as the speech pathologist, might be working on language. So let's say you've got those three people there, special ed teacher, occupational therapist, speech pathologist, and then of course you you have all of the general education teachers who are working with the student as well. So that child might have a lot of needs. I, as the speech pathologist, know that as a person who has an expertise in language, I can do things to work on writing. I can work on, you know, I can really zoom in on writing and, and work on sentence level work, on syntax. I can zoom out and focus on things like reading comprehension. I am qualified to do all of those things, but there are other people on the IEP team who might also be qualified to work on those things. So for example, if I'm working with a special ed teacher, maybe we sit down and decide that it makes sense for her in her class to work on kind of the high level organization of writing. And then I might focus on some of that more zoomed in sentence level work. I might work on syntax and building complex sentence structures and doing some work diving into semantics and helping kids to problem solve and self-question so that they can have better strategies for learning words when they're reading. And these are just some examples. But the point being is that I might be qualified to work on certain things, but I have to think about the big picture first before I even think about what I'm doing in therapy because I can't really make good decisions about what I'm doing unless I know what everybody else is doing because we don't want to have services overlapping where me and the special ed teacher are both working on the same thing and then we're completely neglecting something else. That doesn't make any sense. So we have to focus on what they need before we think about what we are doing in therapy. And then when we think about service delivery, it's not just about what we're doing in therapy. When we look at that big picture, we need to figure out how to actually make those things happen. So that means we need to not just think about the direct instruction and direct therapy model of service delivery. We need to think about all the other things that need to happen in order for the child to work on specific skills in different settings across their entire day. So this means who has access to that child in all of these different settings, and how do we make sure that all of those people that are supporting that child across their environment have what they need so that they know what to do to keep developing this child. So that would be things like you know all their teachers across the day, and then it can also include resources and support for parents because what goes on at home is going to be really important as well. Now, in order to make all of those things happen, people who have access to kids in the the school systems or really any access to kids in a situation where you're providing therapy, we need to think about the other types of services and the other models that allow all of those things to happen. So for example, if I am in a school 
It's not just about what am I doing in my therapy session. It's how do I train these other people? So that means that one form of service could be consultation with teachers or observation in the classrooms or actually doing certain therapy sessions in a classroom. It could also mean conducting trainings. It could mean putting together materials and doing trainings for parents. And there's all types of different things that we need to do. And so that's why when we're actually planning our day and we're actually thinking about these bigger picture projects that we want to work on and actually creating some vision for how they are going to look and what we actually want to do to really be of service to our caseloads, it's really important to think not just about how do I make my therapy better, but how do I make my service delivery better? And that means thinking about the whole team and all of the assets and resources as a whole before we even think about those specifics of what we do when we actually have a student in front of us. And again, that means that we think beyond just one therapy model. We think about all the other models of service delivery. And then when we're planning our day-to-day, what we actually do, we're not just planning for therapy, we're planning for service delivery, multiple models. Now, some pediatric therapists might already be in a situation depending on what their specific area of expertise is, what you're already doing, what your role is. You might already be in a position where you are coordinating services, but it's important for the entire team and really anybody who is who has access to kids to make this shift in the way that they provide their services. And so that's why even if you are in a position, um, and I'm just, just something that comes to mind is, and I don't know how it functions in every single, every single facility obviously, obviously has their little nuances as far as who does what. But when I was in the schools, the school psychologists did a lot of coordinating of services And so that's one particular person that comes into mind who might already be thinking like this, but it's really important for them to realize that one of the things that they can do in their role is to support other people on the IEP team in making this shift. So that just providing that support, because a lot of times, you know, at, like I said, I as a as a person who was providing direct services, I always felt that this was an important shift for me to make. I always felt like I needed to be doing other things and and be flexible with, with the way that I saw my role as a therapist in the schools, but I also felt like I had to really sell it to other people. So I think it's really important for, for people in all of the roles to understand this shift because then it makes sense why other people might be doing things the way that they're doing. And I think really the the shift that therapists can make is that we're not just thinking about ourselves as therapists, but we're also thinking of ourselves as leaders as well. And I think that when a lot of times when I start to tell people that it, it you know, obviously they know it's important to collaborate with their their coworkers, they know that they should be doing trainings for people that they work with. They know that they should be providing parent resources for things that they can be doing at home. 
And a lot of times these are seen as things that are kind of above and beyond. And a lot of the other things that they have to do as far as the coordinating of services and and those types of things, they see as wearing multiple hats, but I don't see it that way. I think this all falls under one hat, which is the leadership hat. And yes, I know that if you are a therapist, you don't necessarily automatically always think of that as a leadership role because it's not an official designation. There's not some specific title that designates you as a leader, but I think sometimes you just have to decide to do it regardless of if somebody picks you for a leadership role or not. And the way I look at it, um, it it kind of reminds me of Abby Wambach's uh, speech that she did for the Barnard graduation, where she talks about leading from the bench, where she was going into a very important game and she actually didn't start. And she talks about how sometimes it feels like you're on the bench. You're not in an official leadership position. You don't necessarily have as much control as you want, or it doesn't feel like you do. But even if you aren't in an official position, even just changing the way that you think about what you do and just deciding that that you're going to do it and just making that decision can sometimes make you more open to, to seeing opportunities where you can make an impact. And maybe you just feel more autonomous in the role that you already have, or maybe you develop some different skills, come up with some different projects or initiatives with your coworkers, and just just lead from wherever you are. And what that does is that it allows you to start building the skills that you need so that maybe if you do want to have an official leadership role in the future, you're better equipped. This is actually when I was I was interviewing for a position in the uh, in the district that I that I worked in. Uh, I didn't get it, but one of the pieces of advice that I was given by the superintendent who interviewed me told me, you know, you don't have to wait. You can start doing things now. There are a lot of opportunities that that you can take right now that can can start to build those skills. Sometimes you you almost have to create your own projects so that you can actually build a portfolio of experience so that when some opportunity does show up, you've actually started to build some of those skill sets and really started to to think like a leader. And so that's something you can do right now. And again, it's a lot of people just, they really like where they're at. They feel, you know, once they shift how they're doing things, they decide that they do want to stay in the current position that they're in because they start to build relationships. They start to feel more autonomous in the way that they provide services and they have more flexibility. That's that's definitely something that happened for me over the years where as I was able to build relationships and trust, I had a lot more independence. I was given a lot more leeway and influence and and really input into the way that I provided my schedule. I really had administrators who didn't micromanage me if I wanted to try something creative. Like, you know, I, I did all sorts of interesting projects when I was working for that district. And it was because I just, I just decided to do them. Like, I mean, I can list off a couple of of different examples, but um, you know, one one thing was that when we were we were doing 
all kinds of planning for response to intervention. And I was on this problem solving team and we just, we didn't really know, we didn't really know exactly what we were doing. It was kind of the blind leading the blind. And so I figured out a way to rearrange my schedule and I just asked my principal, I said, can I go down to this other school district where I had a friend who was a special education teacher and I said, can I just go down there and interview them? Because I know that they're a little bit ahead of us. Can I go interview them and ask them what they're doing for response to intervention? Now, I also tried to find a way to link that up to a project that I already had to do for my doctoral program. But the important thing to take away from that is that I got to go do something that was really interesting and was helpful for the team. And my administrators let me do it because it was beneficial for everybody. And I didn't wait for them to tell me to do that. I just decided to. And and there were many times that I did little projects like that. And when I'm talking about these, this whole idea of having these bigger projects that you do, having some kind of a bigger vision for your role and figuring out ways that you can devote time for them, those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. But but again, I, I think that in order for you to have some context about what you can actually do and what's actually possible, it is really important to make that shift and think of yourself as more of a leader. Um, and I don't want to say not just a therapist because being a therapist is so important, but really thinking of this hybrid role where you are in a leadership position as a therapist. And the reason that you are extremely equipped to do this and why it's so important if you do care about making changes in the field is that a lot of the people who are really higher up, they don't necessarily have as much of a pulse on the the things in the trenches compared to you because you are in the trenches. So you might actually have some really unique qualifications from that knowledge and expertise that you have. The the people who are at the top, those other leaders really need people like you to step up and initiate some of those things because they're so busy with what they're doing that it's really hard for them to have a pulse on everything that's going on, but you do. And so you might actually have some really good ideas about how you can make things better that you can contribute. But really the key is finding the time to figure out what that is and how that looks for you. a good place to wrap up. So in the next episode, I am going to talk about evidence-based practices and how we as clinicians can follow evidence-based practices. Now, obviously, this is a lengthy topic. It is a topic that results in many heated debates in professional discussion groups. So really, the whole key is that you want to have a good decision-making process for yourself And not just focus on what the right answers are, but focus more on your process for getting to the answers. Ultimately, the secret is not about finding one right answer. The secret is more about 
the way that you get to the answers that you do come up with. Now, I'm also going to be walking people through ways to make this shift in my clinical leadership program that is launching in September. So if you're interested in getting on the waiting list for that program, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash leadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash leadership. For now, we will wrap up. But remember that if you found this useful, feel free to share it with your colleagues. And also remember that if you found and if you found it helpful, then feel free to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For now, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.